and I didn't tell anybody. I didn't say a word to anybody. I didn't really know how to handle it. And I spent the next six months running from what they had said. Being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease might take a person down a deep and dark hole. Not Chris. Find out how this 47-year-old finds ways to help mitigate this life-altering disease on this compelling episode of A Tale to Tell. I'd like to welcome Chris Choate to the podcast today. Hello, Chris. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So before we talk about how you are dealing with this allegedly uncurable disease of Parkinson's disease, I'd like to go back and talk about when you were diagnosed with it and uh, just kind of walk us through what that was like hearing that and uh, sure Um, most people that are diagnosed with Parkinson's disease can look back at some point in time when they had uh, a symptom or a a group of symptoms that kind of subconsciously told them something wasn't right and that started for me I I would say in my early 40s Um, I, I had a few things going on that I really couldn't explain and wasn't really sure what was going on, but I knew I didn't feel right. Um, what a lot of people don't know about Parkinson's disease is that it affects you physically, mentally, and emotionally. And so, uh, you know, you would ha- I would have little emotional things that, w- whether it be anger or sadness or happiness or whatever, that were a little bit unexplained. And I then developed a tremor, and and things kind of kept going on from there. And so I knew for a while that something wasn't right, but I was afraid to pursue what it was that was wrong and, and try and identify it. And so I went for a period of time where I, I kind of knew things were off, but I didn't know what what it was. And, uh, over the course of the, during the course of that time, I'm a police officer and during the course of that initial period where I started kind of noticing things being off, I was really self-conscious about not letting anybody else know that I was feeling these things and, and having a tremor in my hand or, or forgetting things or having some of the issues that go along with the very early stages of Parkinson's disease. Um, Oddly enough, this is one of the few things in my life that I haven't Googled. I didn't look up and say, you know, well, I'm having some things weird with my taste. I can't smell quite like I used to. I'm having trouble with my left hand. I never looked any of that up. I just hit it. I I didn't pay attention to it. Were you afraid maybe of what you might find? Oh, absolutely. I, I honestly thought that I had a brain tumor. Um, I, I had spent a lot of time thinking whatever's going on in my body, my inability to pick something up and grasp it the way I used to, my my lethargic speech every once in a while, some of those things, I thought I had a brain tumor. And I was I was um, I did not want to go to the doctor and have him tell me that, and I figured... You know, maybe it'll go away. Was any of your family or coworkers anybody bringing any of these things to your attention to con- kind of reconfirm 
No, I think people, it was sporadic enough. I think some people noticed some things and thought that, you know, it, that something's weird about that, but they would only see it periodically or maybe only once. And so it, it didn't stick with them. Um, after diagnosis, I did come to find out that my wife um, knew all along. I mean, I was hiding things, especially the tremor in my left hand. And, and I mean, obviously when you live with someone for 25 years, they, they pick up on things and, and she knew, but I wasn't, um, I wasn't aware that she was kind of noticing stuff. So how did you get your diagnosis? Um, I went, uh, I went for a physical. Um, I have a phenomenal primary care physician in Durango, um, a guy that I really like. Um, he's been my doctor for a while, um, but I hadn't been on a very regular basis for annual checkups and that kind of thing. And I had some blood work done and I got called back to the office. Um, so I had an initial physical and then I got called back for kind of a follow-up checkup, um, to talk about my blood work and blood pressure and all of that. And, we had a pretty good conversation. Um, I sat on my left hand the entire time. He is not the kind of doctor who will call you out. He's not the kind of guy that, that gets very dramatic. He's got a very dry, um, very matter-of-fact approach to medicine. And so he sort of let me come to him. Um, but when I went back for the follow-up, um, I... I, we took care of the business I was there to take care of and I got ready to leave and he remained on his stool and I, you know, walked to the door and he said, if there's anything else we need to talk about, let me know or give me a call. And I almost opened the door and walked out. I mean, I was, I was right. I mean, I was reaching for the door handle and for some reason my brain just couldn't let me leave the room. And I said, I have something going on and I don't know what it is. And he said, I know. And I sat down on the bench and, um, or sat back down on the, on the exam table. And I was there for two hours and that was in June, uh, two and a half years ago. And I was there for quite a while. Um, he had his associate, uh, one of his partners in the practice come in. Um, both of these guys have been doctors for decades. I mean, they're, they're old school primary care physicians. And both of them told me, um, you know, you need to go to a specialist to have this confirmed, but we're, we're telling you, you have Parkinson's. So at that point in time, did you set up something maybe up in Denver or did you start doing some research? I didn't. I walked out of the room and I walked to uh, my car and I drove around for about an hour, and then I went back to work. And I didn't tell anybody. I didn't say a word to anybody. I didn't really know how to handle it. And I spent the next six months running from what they had said. I didn't go back to see them. I didn't go talk to my wife. I just left it alone and and walked away from it. Oh, so you told no one. You told no one in your family, none of your co-workers, I didn't nobody. tell a soul. Okay. Nope. Okay. Mainly because I didn't know what Parkinson's disease was. Sure. All I knew is that Michael J. Fox is on TV, and he's shaking and wiggling, and he looks miserable, 
and every time he talks, people cry. And that's really all I knew. And I knew it was bad, but I didn't know what it was. And so I just figured, like a lot of things, I'm not ready to deal with this. And so I ran from it. Well, it brings a lot of guilt on the back end. And there's nothing they could have done for me in the six months that I was running um, to 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 curb the symptoms or to I mean it's it's I didn't give away years of progress by hiding from it for six months. But after the fact I came to learn that my wife um was acutely aware that something was going on and I I felt a lot of guilt that I owed it to her to give her the explanation. Sure. But we were not she never asked like what is going on and I continued to sit on my left hand and not tell anybody and or talk to her about it or anything else and that that comes from a lot of reasons I think the 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 biggest reason is not that you don't trust your spouse it's not that you don't trust the way people are going to react to it the biggest reason is you don't know how you feel about it and so you don't know what what your reaction is and you know there there is a, a a broad brush in modern psychology in all psychology that talks about being vulnerable with yourself and others and i i now read that with sort of a chuckle because the theoretical vulnerability that a lot of people talk about is very much put into practice with parkinson's because you have to sort of open yourself up to other people but more than that, you have to open yourself up internally, and that's really, really hard. You bet. Absolutely. So now if you fast forward from when you were hiding for six months, then did you, did you now tell your wife? We had planned for quite some time to take our kids to New York City for Christmas um, that year, and... I was in a position that I felt good enough to travel. I was keyed up. I was gung-ho. We landed in New York City. We stayed in a fantastic hotel. I mean, it was a great trip. And we spent a couple of days. Um, we did a carriage ride in Central Park. And we I gave my wife her Christmas present. Um, surprise Christmas present with the with the help of the kids and the carriage guy and it was just a really special trip and a really special couple of days and we went to breakfast at a at a little place and um, in the midst of breakfast we we started having a pretty heart to heart conversation and one of the things that came up was that she had noticed that there were some problems and she had been noticing for a while. She essentially sort of called me out. So this is the day after Christmas in Manhattan in a really neat cafe. And I told her, they think I have Parkinson's disease. And when I said, you don't know how you react, so you don't know how other people will react. I didn't have any illusions that, that my wife was going to, walk out of that restaurant and never come back. I didn't have any illusions that my kids were going to abandon me, any of that. But I wasn't prepared for the tears and the weight of that 
breakfast and just me and her in New York City and me actually watching her without, I guess, subconsciously watching her heart break. And she knew right away that it was for real. Um, neither one of us wanted to admit it. Um, neither one of us were convinced that we were going to say, yeah, I have Parkinson's, um, until we saw a lot more doctors, but we both knew at that point. And, uh, you know, we, we bucked up, um, we, you know, we bucked up and got on the train that afternoon and went to Washington, D.C. and had the rest of our trip, uh, so we flew home. Um, one of the things that I promised her at breakfast that morning was that I would go back and see my original doctors. Um, they had written me a referral, but it had expired. And so I told her I will make an appointment and go do that. And on the train between New York City and Washington, D.C., I called the doctor's office and they were open. Um, it was the day after or two days after Christmas. Um, we. Uh, we, I, I made an appointment, and within the next week, I was back in the doctor's office, and he and I sat down and had a really long conversation, and this time it was very emotional, um, because he knew everything that had happened in the last, you know, six, six or seven months, and so when we got done, he said, what can you do, what can I do for you, um, is there anything I can do to help you, and I said, you have to call my wife because I can't tell her again. And so, um, it, you know, he, he said all the right things. It's not a death sentence. It's not a, you know, your life is going to change dramatically, but this isn't the end. But it's the first time he was, he was as emotional as I was. That was kind of the second time that someone's reaction, my wife being the first, his being the second, where I was taken aback with the fact that, you know, I have this disease, but it's affecting these people because they, you know, they're sad. And so I asked him to call Jill. It was snowing. We live in Durango, Colorado, and it was snowing heavily the day that I was in there. And he called Jill and explained everything to her. Um, he told her that he, he hoped that I would go see a, a specialist, but you know, he was a hundred percent confident in his diagnosis and we, he talked to her exclusively on the phone and then, you know, he excused me and I went home and I pulled in our driveway and, and my wife was shoveling snow in our driveway. A few minutes later, she came in and we went into our bathroom. We have a really big bathroom off of our master bedroom and we stood, for some reason, that's where we had our talk. We stood in the bathroom and... I think both of us said all the things that you kind of have to say to your spouse. Um, and those include, um, I don't, I, I wouldn't blame you if you don't want to deal with this. And, um, I don't want you to feel like you have to be my nurse and, you know, really hard conversation. And this part gets me a little emotional because I talked for the better part of 10 minutes um, about what I had learned and what I felt and all of that. But she just renewed our wedding vows from start to finish. And 
that day changed my life. Um, it, you know, you, you don't ever expect to have to ask your spouse to, to honor those vows and to see it happen so readily. And, you know, when you're, when you're about to get married and you think, you know, we've got everything in front of us and it's going to be perfect forever. And then when you've been married for 25 years and you have a lot of peaks and a lot of valleys and a lot of good and a lot of bad, but, but when, the when the time comes, um, to see those vows mean something and to see the fact that regardless of the hardship that's coming down the track, the the commitment to another person and somebody you love is that great. And it was, uh, I mean, it gets me emotional today just thinking about it, you know. Um, that was the other hard part is, I mean, I had two nearly adult children. Uh, they were teenagers. And, and bringing them into the fold and sitting down with them and and we did it separately and saying, you know, dad has Parkinson's disease. My my son, who's now in the army, um, he played football in high school. He's a he's a guy's guy, you know, all of that. He got a little emotional, and and we, you know, we talked about the future, and he's like, I'm right here with you, pops, and you know, he went on about his way. My daughter, um, she was she was completely nonplussed, and and not because she wasn't interested. She just had no idea what Parkinson's disease is. She didn't know if it was like having a cold or, I mean, she didn't have a clue. And so trying to explain to her what was coming was the first time that I ever sat and tried to wrap my head around a progressive degenerative disease and explain to a, you know, 14 year old what all this means. And, and that sort of slaps you in the face because you realize I can't really explain this because I don't know what the hell it means. So Chris, at this point in time, I'm assuming that you found some specialists uh, or someone that you entrusted or that someone told you to go see uh, and, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about that and what that's done for you. Well, originally my original referral from, from my primary care physician was to a local neurologist and, um, that neurologist is highly qualified, um, extremely talented, and has um, a really good practice. and And I will say right off the bat that I didn't, I never questioned his opinion or his the quality of care that I would get from him. Um, we sat down the first day that I met with him, and he he did an evaluation of me, did all the tests. And he said, what have you been told? And I said, I'm told that they think I have Parkinson's disease. And he said, absolutely, no question, slam dunk, you have Parkinson's. And I said, okay. And we had a really positive, and Jill was there for that. She watched the examination. She saw all the stuff. And and that was sort of the thing that set it in concrete for her. Um, and then when we got done with with those extensive evaluations and sort of the, I guess this would have been the third time that I was diagnosed. Um, I, I kind of thought that we would then get on a big game plan and 
you know, what's the what's the plan for making this right kind of thing. And the the common thing in a general neurology practice sometimes is, you know, we'll come back and see us in six months. And I wasn't having that. I was like, you know, no way. I mean, we need to get going now. We need to get to work. Absolutely. And so I started on my own just researching Parkinson's care facilities. And I did a bunch of phone calling. I talked to people that I know who have been pretty much children of Parkinson's patients, grown children, um, and asked them what their parents did. Um, And so over the course of a few weeks, we narrowed down the two research facilities that we were the most interested in. Uh, The first one being the Muhammad Ali Center in Arizona, and the second one being the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. And both of them have specialized Parkinson's clinics, um, and it pretty much boiled down to in my estimation, those are the two finest Parkinson's care facilities in the West, certainly, and and among the best in the nation. And it boiled down to the fact that we have family and a history and friends in Nebraska, and so we chose the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And th- that program is what they call a multidisciplinary comprehensive Parkinson's program, so they incorporate a, a number of specialists. They incorporate um, a lot of different kinds of ideas. Some of the stuff is sort of off the map. Some of it is, you know, stuff that in and of itself you wouldn't want to to use primarily for Parkinson's care, but added into the other regiments, um, it's it's extremely effective. And that program in general. Um, the ability to get on an airplane and go out there, it's almost like I'm going for for a business meeting. Um, it gives me something to look forward to. It gives me hope. And then when I get there, it gives me a great sense of, okay, we're, we're getting some stuff done here. And Chris, it's my understanding that this team of doctors that you have in Omaha do some things that are uh, not not your usual run-of-the-mill Western medicine style of programs is that is that safe to say first of all you my doctor here who who i didn't mesh with incredibly well um he was responsible he it it was it's it's his responsibility to offer me a referral and you know i know i know that doctors don't take personal you know they don't take that personally when someone asks him for that but but he handled it really well and he was really classy and he sent all of my files to Nebraska, and they look at your case. They look at the quality of the doctor that's referring you. Um, they do sort of an overall um, look at, at who you are and why you're coming to them. And then they agree to have an appointment with you. Parkinson's disease doctors are neurologists who are further trained in Parkinson's disease, and they're referred to as movement disorder specialists. And if anybody listening to this needs to glean one thing from a guy with Parkinson's disease talking to a podcast, it is that movement disorder specialists are hugely important. 
and they're not readily accessible in a lot of rural communities, and they're not readily accessible where we live in the mountains. And a lot of people can't afford, I, I can't afford to do what we're doing as far as going to Omaha, but I have a lot of benefit from my occupation. I have a lot of benefit from um, insurance and, and the support of my family. So we get by with doing it. But the the travel to see a movement disorder specialist, in my estimation, is one of the biggest things that we do. Just because you're dealing with someone who who is an expert in Parkinson's disease specifically. In, in places like the Muhammad Ali Center, the University of Nebraska, the Mayo Clinic, um, places like that that are comprehensive programs, um, you go in and sit down with someone and have sort of a general evaluation from a movement disorder specialist. I was really fortunate that I drew one of the directors of the program. And so, you know, you, you get an evaluation and they say, yep, kid, you got Parkinson's. And from then, you meet with, over the course of the day, you meet with speech pathologists, nutritionists, um, exercise science people, um, you, you know, you name it. I mean, everything under the sun. And and there's sort of a pro, uh, 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 program written for how you're going to battle your disease. And it was the director of this program. He called, He used his first name. And he said, I need to talk to you about your B vitamins and your D vitamins. And I was, you know, I, I said, okay. And he said, uh, we have some pretty big deficiencies and here's why. And he explained to me the first time I had heard the, the gut-brain connection and the reason that my B and D vitamins don't absorb the way other people's do and and the importance of all of that. And... We finished up our phone call, and I initially started taking um, a, a cocktail of a shot, which is a lot of different stuff, but it's heavy on all the B vitamins and all the D vitamins. And it's it's a little bit like putting light back in the candle. Um, it it doesn't cure Parkinson's. It doesn't fix um, a lot of the things that go on. But it definitely changes the way you feel. Unfortunately, through COVID, that's become a lot more difficult. I mean, you can go to your physician and get a B vitamin shot, but it's it's more difficult to go get um, the the cocktail like at the naturopathic doctor or something like that. Sure. And so we've sort of been hit or miss on those of late, but. They are extremely focused, and, and it's not just in Nebraska. It's in several of these major teaching hospital Parkinson's programs. They're extremely focused on, uh, first and foremost, attitude. I mean, that's the first thing. I mean, the first day I sat there, the, the doctors told me, um, I can tell you what you have. I can't tell you how you're going to deal with it. Um, but from here on out, the very most important thing is your attitude. And I remember that, you know, like it was yesterday. And after that, they have a, a real interest in your nutrition, in, in your sleep, in your vitamins, um, in your exercise. And it so, sort of boils down for me into a, a triangle. And I consider attitude to be the very most important thing. 
and then nutrition and medication I put at another point of the triangle and then exercise being the third part of that great well speak more on on the nutritional side of it I, I I know I'm curious and I know a lot of people listening are curious to maybe some specifics that you do and that they want you to do nutritionally that helps helps to mitigate sure Parkinson's or the effects of well there are and I'm 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 no expert in anything except for my Parkinson's disease. Sure. And so I can't speak to anybody else. But there are a number of things that come along with Parkinson's that people don't know about. Cognitive delay, speech difficulty. I mean, everybody thinks about Parkinson's disease and they think about a 75-year-old grandmother at bingo night. And she's got the shakes. And and as a mine is characterized as young onset Parkinson's or early onset Parkinson's, and and so I kind of get to ride all the rides. I mean, my ticket is for like all the exciting things. I get you know my my speech difficulty, my cognitive delay, my tremor, weakness, tiredness, lethargy, you know, sadness, whatever it is. I get I get some combination of all of them. But the one thing that that I was completely unaware of was the gut brain combination. And there is a huge amount of evidence and, and medically sound evidence that a lot of what goes on in your brain is directly affected by your stomach and the enzymes in your stomach and the things that are, the things that are going on in your gut. And they call it the Parkinson's gut brain connection. And so one of the things that they're that they're most concerned about is you getting the nutrition you need to kind of get the enzymes in your stomach and all of that. Go ahead. Can you can you talk specifically on some foods that you eat now that maybe you didn't used to eat? Well, first and foremost, the the one thing that I do the most is kombucha. Okay. And fermented foods are a big thing. Um, Tell us some specific ones. Um. Coleslaw pickles, um, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, um, they helps build up that gut flora, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it, it makes your stomach a, a more, I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm not a nutritionist, but the way I understand it, it, it builds a more inviting environment for the food that you eat to do its work in the rest of your body. Yep. And, and so one of the things that I have learned is that if, if you eat the right food, it makes the medicine more effective. It makes the exercise more effective. You know, I'm not, I'm not a weight loss champion. I'm not, you know, I'm never going to, you know, be a size four, but I do think that Early on in my life, I had severe migraine headaches that we now know are directly related to the balance of my gut. And that didn't have, that doesn't have to do with me eating Doritos as a kid or, you know, eating popsicles. And I mean, it has to do with the fact that I have a genetic disposition to having a problem in my stomach. And one of the things that they've taught me is that your B vitamins and your D vitamins are absorbed through a very specific place in your stomach. And that place, for people who have had their appendix taken out, have migraine histories, you know, a lot of those things, that place is 
a lot more susceptible to problems. And so a lot of the nutrients and a lot of the things that I, that I want to get into my body, I don't naturally have that happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's wonderful that they're on board with uh, doing some of these nutritional therapies. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the exercise side of it. And, okay. and there's a lot of different types of exercise, obviously, out there, and um, specifically on the ones that they want you doing, and what sure. tends to what shows the most improvement. Well, it it it's a lot like anything else. Um, when you are a, a customer in a restaurant, or a passenger on a plane, or a patient in a neurology clinic your experience is dramatically impacted by your attitude and your willingness to participate in the process. And so I, I sort of look at it from the standpoint of if I went in there as a 75-year-old man and said, they told me I have Parkinson's disease, what do you guys think? And they said, yep, you got Parkinson's disease. Um, and I said, what do I need to do so this isn't going to suck until I die? They would say, you need to get on these meds. You need to eat this stuff. You know, eat a little healthier. You need to clean up your diet and, and help the meds do their job. And you need to exercise. And they would say, you know, the guy would say, what kind of exercise do I need to do? And they would say, you know, exercise. Get out and walk. You know, do your thing. I mean, exercise. And and." That, I think, is a global phenomenon, not just in Parkinson's, but people say, we're going to go exercise. <laughs> and that can mean, you know, jumping rope, walking on the river trail, jumping out of an airplane, whatever. I mean, there's not any, you know, exercise is such a broad term that there's not any real direction to it. And so, you know, a 47-year-old man who's been active his whole life but never been in a gym, really, since high school... Um, I, you really don't know what exercise means. And it's like, okay, well, if I'm going to go exercise for an hour, I, I don't want it to suck for one. And I want to get the most benefit I can out of what I'm doing. And so a little story that I tell people is, um, I have a really good friend, um, that's a neighbor of mine and he had friends that had Parkinson's disease and, um, he was a, he's a coach and and has been a coach his whole life and i was exercising i was hiking i was doing you know they said go out and exercise and i walked up a mountain i'm you know doing push-ups whatever and this guy stopped by my house one day and and just mentioned hey you should go see this friend of mine um he's trained some of our friends that had parkinson's you know it's a there there's some things that he can do to help you and i was like well you know, we'll see. And he was very emphatic. He said, he can help you. And I said, all right, cool. And so I wandered down to this gym and, you know, I start kind of looking into it. And I learned right away that there are very specific, very pointed exercises that can be done where if I'm doing, you know, four, four sets with, you know, five reps in each set, that can be done in a way that there is an exponentially greater benefit than if I do the same exercise or the same amount of work in a different way. And so I was like, okay, I need a trainer. This, this makes sense. I mean, this, the, I can't come up with this in my head and I'm not going to do the research on the internet. 
And so I start working with a trainer, and at the same time, I started asking much more pointed questions to my team as far as what is it I need to do? And they're like, we need you to exercise. And I'm like, no, I need to know. You know, I'm, I'm very pointed. <laughs> and they're like, well, the thing you need to do that's the most beneficial is, you know, interval exercises where your heart rate goes up and comes down. Heart rate goes up and comes down. And I think from talking to trainer friends that I know and my specific trainer, that's a huge benefit to the population in general. Yeah, high intensity but, interval training. Sure. Mm-hmm. But in Parkinson's disease, it it really it really fires your brain. I mean, you you work until you're out of breath and, you know, your your heart rate gets way up and then you rest and you do it again. And it's it's you know, I'm not going to go run 20 miles. I hell, I'm not going to walk 20 miles. But in a 45 minute period, I can jack my heart rate up and drop it down. And that's what they started saying. At the same time, my trainer was doing a lot of independent research that was sort of independent of the norms, I guess, in in personal training, and also drew on experiences that he had working with other people with Parkinson's. And so at the same time, the two met up, and my trainer and my doctors and my PT in in Omaha and and everything came together with this sort of consensus that you need to do short burst interval exercises and and do that on a regular basis and you've really gotten into boxing particularly boxing is 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 the sort of the default to that um to what I was just talking about as far as the the way that you get your heart rate up drop it down um, it's, it's very fun. It's entertaining. Um, there's a lot of culture and history behind it that you can kind of grasp hold of. And it is probably boxing and cycling are seen as the two primary, uh, I would, I would say flagship exercise regiments for people with Parkinson's mm-hmm. and, and boxing for sure has become the thing that makes the most difference for me. Well, and one of the things I love about boxing, particularly for someone with Parkinson's disease, is that you've got to work on balance, which is going sure. to be a chore with your disease. You've got to work on focus. It's going to work on movement, sure, both in your legs and in your upper body. And your both sides of your brain are having to work because you're working to both sides of the body, both hands. You're crossing over the midline of the body. So, yeah, there there's some really very powerful research out there and some programs out there specifically rock steady boxing and uh, and others with without a doubt i mean the all the things you just talked about are things that other people scientists trainers um you know the people on my team and i consider my my trainer in durango my doctors my nutritionists in omaha i mean my wife my we, we are a team at this point and it it's a little bit daunting every once in a while to be at the center of that team. My family understands because if I'm having a crappy day, I mean they have a crappy day, so they you know they uh, they want to be on board to to keep think you know keep the boat from rocking. <laughs> yeah. And and so we have this whole team of people that are involved in in coming up with these ideas and coming up with this stuff to kind of get 
keep things moving. But I will tell you that um, the boxing dynamics, the reaching, punching, moving hands, all that kind of stuff, um, it has benefit medically. They've, they've proven it time and time again. The doctors will tell you, you know, we're so glad you're boxing, all of that. I want to interrupt you, though, and let people know that this is non-impact boxing. In other words, you're not getting hit in the head. No, you don't need any more head problems. <laughs> right. Um, right. No, we, it's, it's bag work, footwork, um, learning how to punch. Um, and, and that was the thing that I was going to kind of conclude with to tell you. Um, Parkinson's disease steals a part of you. Um, when you start realizing that these things you're experiencing are are medically based and that there is a real problem, you know it's not going to go away. And you know that your thumb twitch or your cognitive problems and all of that, you, you put a face on it and you know that's not going to get better. In fact, it's going to get worse over time. And And you end up with a lot of people in your corner trying to come up with ways for you to have the best outcome from your diagnosis. Boxing for me is every bit as much therapeutic as it is, um, mentally therapeutic as it is physically. Um, you know, you, you lose a part of yourself and you lose confidence in yourself and you, you realize like, you know, I can't hold a golf club like I used to. I can't hold it steady. I can't probably hike, you know, 20 miles back into the mountains. Um, there are a number of people with Parkinson's who do cross-country bicycle rides and, and these incredible feats, but they dedicate their lives to those pursuits. So for a 47-year-old cop with, you know, a great life and a great wife and kids going to college, you know, I can't stop what I'm doing and become... Uh, a ride across America team member. I've got to continue to work. And so for me, the the few days a week that I go in and do an hour or however long boxing, I get to hit something and I get to be pissed and I get to raise my heart rate and go through all of the stuff. And at the same time, it's done under the parameters of a science and an art and, you know, a technique and all of those things and then you walk out of there and you realize, you know, that night when you go to bed, can you look at your wife and say, I gave everything I had today to make sure that I had the best day I have. And if you have a total drop of the day, if it's a total catastrophe, as long as you can look at the end of the day and be like, I gave everything I had and I'll get up tomorrow and do it again, then I can live with that. But if I, if I wasn't in a position some nights to say that to myself, then I couldn't, I couldn't live with myself. And the main reason is you are diagnosed with Parkinson's individually. Your family gets the disease and they all have to deal with it and they have to deal with it forever. And so as the person with Parkinson's, it's my responsibility to have the right attitude, the right exercise, keep going to work as long as I can. And at some point, I'm going to be in a wheelchair, probably, based on the the things that affect me um, through the disease. But at the same time, you know, I know that she's going to be pushing me around, and we're going to go to Paris, and we're going to go to Jamaica, and we're going to be at our kids' weddings, and we're going to do those things. And 
the only way that I feel worthy of doing all of that and saying that to myself and having that sort of audacious arrogance about it is the fact that, you know, I show up at the gym, you know, on a bad day, I laugh about it, you know, we keep going. And then when we have crashes, we crash. And then we get up the next day and we start over. Well, Chris, I, uh, I'm going to wrap things up here. I just, I really want to thank you for your time. I appreciate you coming on here, being an open book, being so forthright about everything that has gone on for the last two plus years. Yeah, thank you. You know, I've, I've dealt with, you know, one of my good friends that had Parkinson's disease and passed. And, you know, I consider you a friend. Uh, we've been working together for, together for a while now. And uh, your attitude is, is just second to none. Appreciate your humor. And just appreciate your hard work, and you're certainly a huge inspiration to many people in this community, you know, whether it's in the gym, uh, whether it's at work, and you're certainly going to be an inspiration to people that are listening to this, and a lot well, of people will be. That. So I really do, and I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Um, you know, the last thing that I would say before we wrap up is that uh, Parkinson's disease is something that a lot of people don't understand. And there are a lot of resources on the internet for people who think they may have it or who think they may have a family member with it or someone who realizes that their family does have it. And the Michael J. Fox Foundation, the Brian Grant Foundation, and the Davis Finney Foundation, those websites all have information that had I known they existed in the six months that I was running from reality, I would have gone there and been able to, to find a lot of comfort and a lot of facts. And so I would just say to people, you know, if, if you're, if you're in a place where you're sort of wondering about that, you know, that's a good place to start and, and try and educate yourself as much as you can. And then, you know, go from there. Great, great advice. Chris, thank you again. I appreciate it and uh, maybe we'll get you back on here again. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the popular books, Wellness Toolbox 1 and 2. These books are available on Amazon as well as at local Durango, Colorado merchants. Purchase your copies today.